I should probably just call this podcast the Bad Titles Podcast because I am on a roll. <laughs> and you're welcome. Hello. How are you? Thank you for listening today. And maybe you're continuing to listen. So that moves you right up to the top of my list. You are definitely my favorite. I am going to talk about everybody's favorite subject today. It's that four-letter word, sale. Sales, selling, Ugh. If I had a dollar for every eye roll I've gotten, for every excuse I've heard, and believe me, my friend, I was the eye rolling, excuse making sales hater. I totally get it. So today I want to share with you maybe some ways of reframing sales, definitely some tricks that have worked for me and my people, and also some tricks that have worked for the best salespersons, persons, peoples sales professionals that I've ever worked with. What's probably like really going on when we say we hate sales and just some different ways of potentially getting sales in your business that aren't even actually selling. So with that, I'm sure you're super jazzed. You can't fucking wait. I mean, I'm going to assume that you did choose to listen to this for a reason, but I'm also silently applauding for you because I can't imagine you like woke up today and were like, gosh, I cannot wait to listen to BZ jibber jabber about sales because I fucking love sales. I can't wait to sell. (laughs) And now I'm going to listen to a whole podcast episode about sales. So you're doing the good thing, fighting the good fight. You're here for a reason. I appreciate you. And hopefully I will make this maybe even a little bit enjoyable. We'll see. I would have been remiss though, not talking about sales. And in my goal to kind of touch on everything business remaining for this first season of the podcast, like it had to be done. Right. And I think sales has such a bad rap because it has been done by people maybe with not your best interests at heart. And I think when we hate on sales, it's probably because we're being sold something we don't really want or don't think we really need. And so it feels gross. And we don't want to be that person. We don't want to be the person shoving some unnecessary (laughs) upsell, like an appetizer or leather upholstery, when that's just like not really what we're here for. With that, I'm going to get into why sales are actually really important and how you can think about selling in a manner that actually motivates you. I have worked, I mean, I guess like if I'm honest, I've worked in sales my whole life and I'm like legitimately having that realization right fucking now. So, whoa, I started selling ice cream and sure I was 14 scooping ice cream across the street from a beach during this summer. I generally had people coming into the shop I was working for already signed up. They were here for it. They wanted some cool, delicious ice cream or potentially the worst smoothie they'd ever had. I, uh, I didn't know you could make a bad smoothie until I, at 14 years old, made smoothies and people would bring them back. (laughs) There is an art to even a smoothie, my friend. You know, I'm in there trying to get more scoops, get more tips. Uh, Fast forward to, you know, restaurant and um, service industry. And then that absolutely overlapped as I got into music. And I found myself 
stepping into marketing and, you know, trying to get fans to buy tickets to shows, to buy merchandise from bands, to buy records, right? For stores to order more records, for record distributors to invest in more manufacturing. And now that I think about it, it's interesting because I've always hated sales. I've definitely been one of those people, you know, um, slash like everybody, and I'm assuming just like you, who never thought of themselves as a salesman, who rallied against the salesperson. I was aware when I was being measured by my performance in terms of how much could I get the customer, client, buyer to spend, like especially at a restaurant, if you're making tips, you want your tab to be as high as possible. But there's a big difference between like recommending a bottle of wine or an appetizer or whatever that you actually really, really love, or just going for the most expensive item on the menu. The thing is, is maybe the most expensive item on the menu is the thing you really love. And you can make a joke about it and say like, I know it's going to feel like I'm just upselling you here, but I really do love the shrimp enchiladas, which was actually a line that I said, but I digress. If you're playing the drinking game where you count how many times I digress, that's your first shot right there. Okay. The pivotal moment for me is when I started selling myself. So fast forward 20 years, I'm no longer working in somebody else's business. I'm no longer working with or for businesses that weren't necessarily like me selling my time to support people as in like the record label or the recording studio or the touring company or the artist management. Like there was always, I was always like the, the, facilitator, but it wasn't me that was being sold. And what I will say is selling art. My excuse there was it's subjective, right? Like if you don't like it, if it's not for you, I totally get that. No pressure, no worries. Like I believe in what I'm selling and I love what I'm selling. So it's easy for me to sell it. But again, it wasn't me, nor was it something that you could really like put up against someone else, someone's music, someone's art. You can't really compare that directly to another piece of music or art, like you would say like a toothbrush or a t-shirt or even like, you know, a home service or something like that. I mean, it gets a little bit easier to AB and test and compare when you're dealing with like a very tangible product. Um, and with the creative industries, it's, it's not really like that at all. That actually made it easier for me. But when I still had to start selling myself, I had a lot of reservations. I was totally triggered and freaked out. And I realized I was in this position of selling snake oil (laughs) and I did not feel great about it. Uh, Someone was presenting in one of the many trainings and skills development opportunities I've put myself through over the last two decades. And the aha moment for me was when they said, everyone is a direct salesman whether you're working on your resume and applying for jobs or you're trying to get yourself dressed and ready in the morning, or you're trying to talk yourself into that healthy choice at mealtime, you are selling. And it doesn't make a difference if you're an employee or an employer. It doesn't make a difference if you're in business or starting a business. You have to sell yourself first. Because if you don't believe in what you're doing, if you don't have buy-in, you're not going to be successful. And that was a real like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I do sell a lot more than I'm conscious of. And I'm actually a lot better at it than I realize. And if I'm going to be successful just in anything that I do, 
I, I better get good at selling. I better understand sales. I better embrace the process of selling, selling. And I should like probably study and test different ways of selling that are more successful, that feel a little bit easier. And that for me are certainly a lot more fun. So in doing that, I started talking to people who I felt like were really good at sales. I definitely, you know, bought all the books and listened to all the podcasts and blah, blah, blah. And for someone who would define themselves as a problem solver for most of their life, what I realized sales does is offer solutions to problems. And this is why, and this isn't a marketing episode, so I'm not really going to get into it, but this is why people say to niche down is what you're offering someone is a very simple solution to their very acute problem. And so if you're trying to solve all of the problems, firstly, it doesn't feel very urgent or specific to all of the problems, right? And your solution isn't as easy to understand because it's just a very generic sort of umbrella kind of approach. It's it's like if I go to, I land at the airport and I go out to the curb and my friend's supposed to be picking me up and I see this person and they're just screaming, hey, I'm not going to pay a lot of attention to that. I'm busy looking for my friend. But if that person says, hey, Nicole, I'm going to turn and look but they're not my friend. So I keep on going. But if they say, Hey, Nicole, you're looking for Sam. They can't pick you up. They asked me to come and get you. I'm going to look and listen to what they have to say. If they walk up to me and I have a text from my friend, Sam, because they texted Sam and it says, Hey, Nicole, that's John. He's wearing a white shirt. He's coming to grab you because I wasn't able to pick you up. Thanks. See you soon. I'm going to be like, oh, hey, complete stranger that I've never met nor had any idea was going to pick me up. Let me get in your car and you can take me to someplace I don't even know where I'm going because now I trust you. (laughs) You know, that's sales. Sales is getting someone who doesn't know you, doesn't trust you, doesn't have any reason to believe you to suddenly give you money for what you have. And when you offer someone a solution to a problem that they don't want any longer, you've just made a sale. And if you don't offer that solution, you might be keeping this person in a state that is incredibly undesirable, unwanted, and unhelpful. They're not able to solve their problems and they're like suffering. I mean, maybe not acutely. I probably would have just called an Uber at the airport. (laughs) You have something that someone needs a lot. And if you don't tell them about it, if you don't invite them to learn more about you and what you do and how you do it, you are keeping them from happiness, from success, from purpose, from fulfillment, from ease, from joy, from all sorts of things that are going to make their life better. And when I started thinking about sales like that, it almost felt compelling. Like, holy shit, I need to not only understand this, I need to be much, much, much better at this because I can see what people get after me and I can see where they're at before me. It is unacceptable that anyone ever feels the way that they're feeling when they reach out to me, haven't yet realized or don't believe that they have the full capacity to feel the way that they want to and that they can create their dream reality. Then it's like not even about selling. It's just about how can I talk to more people? How can I reach more people? How can I impact more people? This is where values come in. 
you know how much I value values. And if you don't, that means this is the first episode that you're listening to. Go check out Invaluable Values just for one quick example. You know, the way that I make sales work for me is absolutely in alignment with my values. It's fun, it's adventurous, it's excellent, and it's authentic. You're going to get that in everything that I do say and put out there. And especially when I start with fun, like, guess what? Sales are fun. So if you're feeling like you don't know how to do it or you don't know where to start, I would argue like I would with everything, go to your values, figure out what's most important to you. There's tons of exercises. I talk about it all the time. Um, Reach out to me, 720-704-4865 if you have any questions about how you can get clear on your values. So assuming you're clear on your values, the second step in sales is use what works. Now, I'm going to assume you have proof of concept. If not, that's what you need to to get. So whatever it is that you're selling, get one person to try it. And notice I didn't say buy it. I just said try it. So when you're in proof of concept stage, you too are looking for that confidence in your own solution. So you do need other people to try it. Now, you can create an exchange. Sure, that can look like money. You can also do a trade. You can ask for feedback. You can ask for a testimonial or a review. There's all sorts of ways you can create a balanced exchange where someone is testing your proof of concept in order for you to get the confidence, the feedback, and the improvement that you need to sell. Now, let's just assume you've sold You've sold before. People have paid you actual money that are not your mother <laughs> um, or your best friend to buy your thing. Whatever you did to get that sale, that's going to be your first sales strategy. You're just going to rinse, wash, and repeat until you can hit a stride. And I think, not I think, I talk about this a lot, like how you can create that system and that predictability so that you understand what you need to do in order to get a sale. And then you just simply do that enough to create the number of sales that you need to be sustainable. I'm not actually getting into that in this episode. What I really want to talk about is why you aren't selling, what you're afraid of, And then the secret sauce of sales, uh, which is partnerships and referrals, which I did not come up with that myself, nor am I pretending to do that. But I do want to talk a little bit about, again, some things that I've thought about and some things that work really, really well for my people so that you can create the system and that rinse, wash, repeat approach, even to the partnerships and referrals, which is like selling without even having to sell at all. So firstly, because you're going to have to sell to get partners and referrals. Why aren't you selling? What are you afraid of? And the biggest objections that I hear, I mean, first and foremost is being sleazy, but I'm going to finish up with being sleazy. The real reason that I think we're all afraid of selling and what I have seen a million hundred thousand times, whether it's an artist who is selling selling tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of um, product, music, songs, merch, tickets, et cetera, is rejection. And I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how many times you have sold. That fear of rejection is something you're going to experience. It can show up like imposter syndrome. It can show up like insecurity. It can just be straight up avoidance of shame and pain. Kind of your most basic levels of like, I don't want to. (laughs) We're afraid of being rejected. 
We've all been rejected and it fucking sucks. Why? Because we make it about us. We think it's something that we did wrong, something that is inherently flawed within us and something that we cannot change because like, this is who we are. Now, this is super old school sales, like some 1950s sales guru or whatever who said this, but some will, some won't, some are waiting, so what? And all that means is, yeah, some won't. Some just won't like what you got. So what? Those aren't your people. And I don't know if you checked the population recently or how many people are using the internet or how many weirdos and freaks that are out there just like you on a Reddit thread. (laughs) But there are thousands if not millions of people out there who will. So focus on them. Okay. And then some are just waiting. Now that's where your sales strategy can really hone in on. And I've talked about this. It's your customer journey. Like once you find that person who will, but they are taking their time or they're not quite sure, or as they step out, the breadcrumbs along your customer journey. Why is it taking so long? And maybe it's just a simple matter of timing. Maybe you're, you sell summer school or summer activities for kids not in school. So your customers, buyers, clients just might be waiting. <laughs> How can you incentivize them to buy now? That's an example of a sales strategy with this this approach of some will, some won't, some are waiting, so what? If you're letting the fear of rejection get in the way of making a sale, I'm not exactly sure how you're going to get the income and revenue and profits that you need to keep going. So make it about a learning process. Instead of a rejection feeling personal and about you or what you're doing, figure out why they said no. They're probably just not the right customer client buy it for you. But maybe they had a negative experience. Maybe they don't trust you enough. That would put them into the waiting category. Maybe they don't understand what it is that you're selling. Maybe it's completely out of their price range. Maybe they actually expected something of high quality to cost a lot more. Getting feedback, turning this into a learning process empowers you. It takes that fear of shame or pain and says, what if this isn't about me at all? It neutralizes it by saying, how can I learn from this? And you can create a very simple, even automatic process around that by sending out a survey, by asking a few simple questions if you do get a rejection. If you get fired, I work with clients who no longer want to keep working with a business or myself. And I can just simply ask, why not? (laughs) It might just simply be that the service I offered was, was never in alignment with how they work. You know, I don't work well with people who need a ton of handholding, who aren't willing to take accountability, who aren't willing to implement the strategies that they create with my support. And so if I get someone who isn't making any progress or who isn't uh, applying the lessons and the learnings, I I mean, it's just not going to work. And, you know, my financial consulting firm, we got fired by people who want us to bill hourly. 
we don't do that. <laughs> you know, we, we can create the transparency that, that they are looking for in hourly. And so that was a really interesting opportunity for me to learn. Why, why are we getting, why aren't they renewing their contract with us? Well, they're looking for a different model, but what is it in that model that we can still offer just at a slightly different perspective? So just owning and knowing the fear of rejection is very real and it's very okay. Can you acknowledge that fear and ask it to take a step back while you step through and make some sales? And just like a little bonus exercise, maybe ask and explore for you when you first really experienced rejection and how it felt, but importantly, what it taught you. Because I'm going to make a leap here, but usually it teaches us how to protect ourselves but you can safely, securely, and protected grow your business, get better at sales, understand who your ideal target buyer, customer, client is, what the messaging is that they respond to, the pricing, the placement, all of those fun business things so that you can hire someone else to do the sales and manage them effectively, right? But you're going to have to step through a little bit of fear and discomfort in order to create more success. So that's why we're talking about this, because I want you to be as successful as possible. And you're listening because you want to be as successful as possible. And being afraid of anything, as you know, eats into your bandwidth for success. But fear of rejection is, is a pretty old school, pretty tried and tested trauma we've all been through, we've all endured, and we can grow past it. I mean, like, look, is it never going to be there? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is it doesn't have to hold you back. And when it does show up, all you have to do is get curious and just say, oh, like, where's this coming from? What, what do I really want here? What am I willing to do to set this fear aside to get what I want? Okay, so that's like the internal battle, I think, with sales. The external reality is sometimes we don't start digging into our sales until we're fucking desperate. Like we need money or we need reassurance or we need momentum or, I mean, look, we're in business. We need money, right? Ain't nothing wrong with that. We live in a capitalist world. And unless you've like somehow managed to make your Burning Man experience go year round and you're just living on a barter system, we're desperate for sales and we need money. That's why we're in business, at least in this capitalist framework. Money is a fantastic tool. It enables us to pay the people that work for us, to buy the resources that we need to keep our businesses going, and to do all of the things outside of work that we love doing. Sales is how we get money, right? The challenge is, is that somewhere along the lines, we probably tied up our worth and our value in the dollar amount. And so we use sales as the only metric for our success in business. And the thing is, is if we are doing what we love and we are making our love and passion available to those who need what we got, sales are a byproduct. Sales are effortless. So how do we get out of a place of desperate? when we need money and we need sales, it's, it's paradoxical. First things first, if you're in a state of desperation, start there. 
and I've definitely talked about this and I think I'm going to start or like, I just, I start to feel like I'm repeating myself because I'm talking to people all day long, every day, I'm doing podcast episodes, I'm writing blogs, I'm, you know, doing workshops and speaking and what. So apologies if I'm repeating myself, but it's probably worth repeating. If you're in a desperate financial place, I think there's three ways of tackling it. And this is really going to depend on how you work and who you are. Some of us need a fuck you fund in the bank. We need to have enough money in the bank that we know we're going to be able to keep going, keep afloat. And whether that's three weeks or three months or six months or a year or three years, you need to stop and figure out how you can get that money in the bank. And I saw a post the other day where if you're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck or sale to sale, there's no time for you and no space for you to create this security. If that is your situation, I would firstly be happy to talk with you about that and we can work out like an exit. I actually have a whole worksheet called exit strategy, Uh, but something isn't working in your experience, whether it's your spending, whether it's the way that you are engaging with your money, whether it's your focus and willingness to step into discomfort to create the success that you desire. Obviously I'm talking at you right now, so I I don't know what it is, but what I will say is you can create that security and you can stop the madness when you're ready. In the meantime, there's something that you're getting from this sense of urgency and from this sense of desperation. Explore that. What's the benefit of staying in this cycle for you? And no judgment, my friend, believe me, we've all been there. I've 1000% been there. So I, you know, for me, like, how did I firstly come up with these three paradigms? I've, I've witnessed this in hundreds of people that I've supported and worked with and built out their own businesses. And then I've absolutely been through this myself as well. And at different stages or in different situations, it's sometimes a, a different level of security that's needed. But what I found is we are one of these three people in any given moment. So we need the fuck you fund or we need a retainer. We need some amount of money coming in every week, every month, every quarter that we can count on because that's that's what ensures our stability, our survival. It is impossible to build and create when you're in survival mode, always, that might be the catalyst to get things started. That might be the catalyst to get things going. And you might be the person that falls into this, this third category. Uh, so, and in fact, the, the need and urgency for survival is something that you can utilize, but you know, if who you are, my friend, (laughs) and if you find yourself paralyzed and triggered by bills, by expenses, by, um, living a damn life and needing the the tool of money, then having a retainer or having a fuck you fund is, is probably going to be one of the two ways that you work best so that that gives you the space to create, to take risks, to take leaps from. Now, some of us fall into this third category and I've always been here, but most people, most people evolve to this space. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to say I'm fucking crazy and um, use my examples as different ways of thinking about things, but test and make sure that they uh, work for you. I'm always a big believer in testing, but some of us need to burn it all down to get that fire to create and to push through discomfort. 
So it's almost like in survival mode, like we fucking go for it. And so for you, like it is stepping into extreme places of discomfort. And it is knowing that in that it's almost like the, the ultimate desperation is like the ultimate freedom. Cause I've got nothing to lose. And again, that idea of nothing to lose, if that doesn't resonate with you, look at the first two examples of having like a fuck you fund or having some type of retainer coming in on the regular and ignore the, the phase three. But why, why do these three matter? Because coming from one of them in sales is crucial. People can feel your desperation. They can smell your fear. And even if you believe in what you do and you know what you've got is powerful, if you show up desperate for a sale, whomever you're speaking with, whomever you're selling to, they're going to sense that. And it just creates enough doubt, enough uncertainty for them to fall into the some won't or some wait categories, right? Because they're not even going to be able to put their finger on it, especially if you show up confident, rehearsed, you believe in your sale. It's like they don't know why, but they're, it just isn't going to close. It's not going to land because they can sense that desperation, This is why I say, if you're in a place of fear or force, don't make decisions because who are we selling to first? Ourselves. If you're desperate, if you're afraid, if you're fearing rejection, if you're, you know, avoiding pain or shame, and that's where you're making decisions from, it's going to be about as effective as trying to sell from those spaces as well. You're going to get subpar results and you're probably just going to spin your wheels. The reason I say, you know, figure out how, who you are is because if you've got that fuck you fund or you've got that monthly retainer, you're not going to be desperate. And again, maybe you're like the freaky deaky weirdo like me who thrives in desperation and it's exciting and fun and expansive. Again, a very different uh, perspective, a very different place to be coming from than like that fear or avoidance of shame or pain. Now, here's what I need to say in terms of desperation. This is a programming. And what I mean by that is you've been taught this, you have observed this, and we have been traumatized into thinking that there is not enough, that this is a battle to be fought and you don't want to be the loser. But if you can just test and try that there is no competition. Like I said earlier, there are literally millions of people out there that you can help. The challenge is not your sales, but just how to find them, right? How to speak to them so that they know about your solution because they need it. They want it. They're the ones that are desperate. They're just desperate to find you. And they're, they're very much wanting you to share with them what you do, how you do it, what makes you special. So with that, um, yeah, I guess the last thing kind of probably holding you back is being sleazy. <laughs> like uh, we're afraid of, oh, what's the word floating around now? Cringe of being cringe. I mean, if you've ever cringed when someone sold to you, it's because like you didn't want it or you didn't, they're, what they were doing just wasn't for you. 
And so firstly, like that judgment, like just get a little real with yourself about where you are judging others, because I can guarantee that is reflected right back at you. What is it like for every one finger you point for pointing back at you? Or is it three? Cause thumbs aren't fingers. I don't know. That sleazy salesman. That's a story you're telling yourself. And I'm wondering, you know, how can there, like, how can you both and it? So sure. If you're putting yourself in positions where people don't want it, they don't like it, they don't need it, it, it might feel a little sleazy to them. And when we're, you know, on the internet or at a conference or at a networking opportunity, there might be a large group of people there that don't want what you got. So what if that's okay? You know, what if by putting yourself out there, by refining your message, by trying different platforms and different placements. And all I mean is finding a place where your product, whether that's you or a tangible item that you create and sell or a service that you offer, it's, you got to find the right spot and I, you're going to find some spots that just don't work. Now, does that mean you're sleazy or cringe? No, (laughs) it just means you're testing so you can iterate and improve. So you choose how to both and it. And I I mean, for me, my favorite approach is I'm learning. I'm testing. This isn't about if I succeed or fail. This is about what works and what doesn't. So I can stop doing the stuff that doesn't work and start doing more of the stuff that works. This is why starting with the strategy that has worked rather than like putting yourself out there in a million different places on a zillion different platforms that feels like a lot of busy and a lot of doing, but actually just honing in on that thing that really does work and has brought you success and getting it to a point where that becomes your monthly retainer. That is your dependable, reliable, replicable source of continued income and sales. That is going to give you that security so that you can start testing, but also that confidence so that you know you've got plenty of people out there that want what you got, or you got enough people. I mean, some of us don't need a heck of a lot of people. What we do is, is time intensive and expensive. And so we only need a few people. And that is actually going to be a really great segue. Good job, easy to um, partnerships and referrals. So the number one way to sell, because you are skipping the trust and the likability that you're building in your sales process and going right to the end of like, do you want to buy? Hit me up is through partnerships and referrals. And I'm going to be honest. I've thought about this as like a short list of, clients who love working with me and I straight up bribe them. Like you get a really, I mean, I think it's a sizable chunk of money. Uh, if you refer someone to me and like, I have very purposefully picked amount of money that felt like a motivating. And actually I was like, do I say it out loud? Do I not say it out $500? I offer my referrals, $500 for people who book with me. Cause that to me is worth being like, Oh, if you're looking for an alchemist, if you're looking for support in your small business, I know like an amazing human. Um, (laughs) when I Venmo that amount to people, they are shocked and then they do it again. So that works, but I digress. There are so many different creative ways of thinking about partnerships and referrals. The obvious one is the evangelist. And that is the person who has bought from you before who cannot wait to tell other people about you. And yes, you can do this by incentivizing them. 
So this might look like an affiliate. This might look like a way that somebody can quite literally say buy their product and they get a kickback from it. It can also look like a referral bonus. And in some industries, this isn't legal, but I would behoove you to think creatively about how you can build up these partnerships, referrals, and evangelists. Because by the, like when, when one of their people reaches out to you or walks into your place of business, they're already ready to buy. They are showing up because somebody they trust has, has passed on their trust to them. And so you're, you're good. You're good to go. (laughs) Right now. There are, you know, VIP programs, loyalty programs, coupons. What I will say with any of it is measure this. Incentivize somebody to refer back to you, but like only reward them if they're doing it on the regular and you can determine the time. But this this enables you to stay top of mind. So like as an example, um you know, you're checking in with these people regularly and asking them how things are going. You can even ask them like, who should I talk to? So that they're remembering like, oh yeah, not only um, is there a direct financial incentive for me to work with this person, but I actually become a resource to my community and to my network when I am able to make valued suggestions and offer them solutions to their problems, right? So you're actually doing somebody a really big favor. You know, you're helping them because they can then help their people when they become your evangelist. So the other ways of thinking, and I, I've, I mean, it kind of makes sense, but I, you know, for me, systemizing, it gives you the ability to rinse, wash, repeat without a lot of effort or energy. So think in terms of partnerships and referrals for most small businesses, having a group of 10 to 20 different people or different businesses or different partnerships and referrals is ideal. And why that number? Well, if you break down your desired income and your average sales amount, I bet if you had 10 to 20 people sending you those sales, you would be hitting your desired targets without having to do a lot more. So look at that number. And then what you're going to want to do is create a sales, like a partnership and referral matrix. So you're going to have a little from column A, a little from column B, a little from column C. And so there are like the before and after partners. So those are businesses or services or people who might step in before the buy in your business or after my financial consulting firm, right? We act like fractional accounting departments for mid to large small business. People that become come before or after, as an example, legal. All of the businesses that we work with have a legal firm that they employ. They typically also have tax strategists. Now, legal is not doing accounting. Tax is not doing accounting. That's where we come in. This business was started by legal. I mean, we're working with contracts. There's clearly a lot of legal department support, and that might be in their business or outsourced. That actually doesn't really matter. Uh, We can still find those legal professionals and create relationships with them. Obviously for us, it's going to be better if they're outsourced because then we don't need to have an exclusive relationship with them, which is something I'll get into in a second. But the point being, uh, we're going to, a business will have employed a legal team to have established their business. And when they're ready to work with us, they will be needing additional support in their accounting department. And they also have outsourced account uh, tax advisors. 
So we can create relationships with those legal teams and those tax advisors so that when those tax advisors or legal teams are hired and employed by businesses, they refer those businesses to us for their accounting. Now, adjunct is a different way of thinking about this. So these are people that don't necessarily become before or after your service, but they work in synergy with your service. So as an example, we don't do basic level bookkeeping. So accounts payable, accounts receivable, invoicing, like bank reconciliations, just little things like that. We step in at an advisor strategy role. So we have different bookkeepers that we work with and some of whom even are contracted within our existing business. So it feels like like we're white labeling their business and their services. So we have several relationships with bookkeepers so that we can, if and especially if we take a sales call with a client or a prospect and they're not, they're just not at the right stage in business yet. They haven't grown to a certain space. We can refer them to these bookkeepers because that's probably exactly where they're at in business. Hiring an executive coach. That's someone when we come in and start making these strategic financial reports and start giving leadership a lot more transparency in the types of decisions they can be making for their business. Oftentimes these strategies are not implemented. And so having some executive coaches in our repertoire makes a lot of sense because then the solutions that we're suggesting to these businesses actually get implemented. There's somebody there to hold them accountable to. And that might be a little bit, you know, outside of our wheelhouse, because as an accounting firm, we might not be working with the C-suite to implement all of these financial strategies that we've uh, reported on. So that's just an example for a service-based business. Think about a graphic designer before and after might be a sales team and a website designer. The business is trying to rebrand. They hire the graphic designer, but the graphic designer was referred to them by their website designer, or the graphic designer was referred to by their sales team or their outsourced sales team because the sales team wants the rebrand to help them be more successful at their job. Services that come before and after might be copywriting and photography. So the graphic designer is amazing at pulling all of those things together, but they're not the writer, nor are they the ones, you know, hitting the pavement and taking the product shots. So just, you know, different ways of thinking about it. How can you find these people that are in support of what you do? They work in synergy with what you do and they are referring business to you. Lastly, like think about like a bricks and mortar or um, a bricks and mortar physical business location. The obvious one in terms of who is adjunct to you are going to be your neighbors and events. Whomever you're on the street with or in the mall with or potentially in the the center, you know, oftentimes there's business centers or, you know, home, home centers, different places like that. Like you can work with the businesses that are immediately around you to figure out how to increase foot traffic, how to increase referrals and partnerships. Same with events. If the city's hosting a local event or obviously there's holidays or things happening, how can you work with um, existing event organizers to draw foot traffic and business to your business? And then, I mean, yeah, just think about who might your customer be going to before or directly after they buy from you. Those people should be in your partnership and referral network, and they should be they should be getting business from you as well. That's the rub here is that you are helping each other. And I'm a big believer, and you know, this is why I don't believe in competition, because it's like the bigger the pie, the more everybody eats. Instead of fighting for your small piece of the pie, the question should be, how can we make a bigger pie? So why... Why focusing on the partnership and referrals? Why does all of this matter? Because you need sales. 
you want sales, you want to be good at sales, you want to love sales. Because like I said, the byproduct of loving what you do is success. When you reframe it in a manner that enables you to think positively about what you're doing, to feel good about what you're doing, to feel expansive and like you can be successful, you're going to keep doing it. It's going to feel enjoyable. You're going to have to get through some fear and some discomfort about why we're not doing this. We have a lot of excuses. I hate sales. I suck at sales. Salesmen are sleazy. You know, there's so many different reasons, especially as you grow and expand, that you'll tell yourself about why you can't get the sale. And that's that's where your exp- ex- that's where your exploration begins. Yeah. Otherwise, once you've got your sales process really streamlined and you're feeling pretty good about it, getting other people to sell for you. I mean, that's the dream, right? I think that's it. (laughs) It's going to keep talking, but it's like, you know what? We've, uh, We've done a lot of work here. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking this time to invest in you and your business and your success. If you feel called, definitely share this episode. I feel like this is one of the main things I talk about certainly in um, my clients. And it shows up nuanced for everybody. We all have our own reasons as to why we hate sales. So I hope that this has helped you kind of unpack a little bit about your aversion and given you some opportunities to create likability. I was trying to think of an opposite word from aversion. Um, To create attraction. Sure, that works. And you know where to find me, the BZ channel on most socials, NicoleBZ.com on the World Wide Web. <laughs> Text me 720-704-4865. I'd love to hear about how this episode helped you, what you hate about sales. I love workshopping with people. Text is my favorite form of communication. That's why I have that platform. I have a whole sales module in my Biz Inc. So my little business incubator that I've created that enables you to really dive into the learnings and skills development that you want in terms of your business and your leadership and communication and marketing and messaging and finances and sales. So uh, yeah, check that out. I think that's it. That's all I got. Thank you so much for listening. This, this may have been my longest one yet. Beefy. Beefy.